0: The Jewish Views on The Definition of Anti-Semitism Britain Becomes One of the First Countries to Officially Adopt the IHRA's Stance Limud 2016 The Annual Conference is Nearly Upon Us and We Get a Preview of This Year's Events and 75 Years of Pinna United What Better Way to Celebrate than With an Adonalamathon
1: first, for the run-up of the Jewish News this week, I'm Clive Roslin. The Prime Minister Theresa May has announced that the UK will sign up to an internationally recognised definition of anti-Semitism. Addressing 800 guests at the Conservative Friends of Israel annual lunch, Mrs May said there would be one definition of anti-Semitism which would be language or behaviour that displays hatred towards Jews because they are Jews. The government has said its adoption will ensure that culprits won't be able to get away with being anti-Semitic. Jewish students have voted to continue working with the National Union of Students and its anti-Israel president, Malia Boatia. The vote at the Union of Jewish Students annual conference led to a passionate debate, but organisers said the result meant Jewish students aren't ready to give up on the NUS. Ms Boitia has said her well-documented criticisms of Zionism were not criticisms of Jews. The Israeli Prime Minister has said he will press the US President-elect, Donald Trump, into dismantling the Iran nuclear deal which was negotiated by Barack Obama and other world powers in 2015. Benjamin Netanyahu was always against the agreement, which he called an historic mistake for the world, but he has given no further details of what he'll propose. Mr Trump has also been a harsh critic of the deal, saying it could destroy Israel. A bill to prevent non-Orthodox public prayer at the Western Wall in Jerusalem, has been submitted to the Knesset. It's proposed that a fine of approximately £2,000 will be levied on anyone taking part in egalitarian prayer services or on women who take out the Torah scroll and read from it and wear prayer shawls in the women's section. Passage of the Bill would destroy the agreement made earlier this year which was negotiated by the Reform and Conservative movements for an egalitarian prayer section at the wall in Jerusalem. And finally, two pairs of Polish-Jewish siblings, who each believe their entire families died in the Holocaust, have met for the first time at the Yad Vashem Holocaust Museum in Jerusalem. Fania Blakey and her brother, Janadi Band, were reunited with their first cousins, Henia Moskowitz and Rajka Pachnik. Though the families were originally from Warsaw, it turned out that the cousins and their parents had all fled to the Soviet Union during the war and then ended up in Israel. Well, that's the news, and I think Adam... Are ready
2: with the sports now? I am. I look forward to seeing you later at the schmooze, Clive. Indeed. I guess we're not going to be talking about European football, which is a shame because I'm a real sports nut. <laughs> but anyway, talking of European football, Hapoel Beersheva have said they're confident Turkish authorities will provide them with the necessary security for their trip to Turkey after they were drawn to face Besiktas in their last 32 Europa League match. The tie is set to be played under heavy security especially in the light of two recent deadly suicide attacks, which took place outside the Turkish club stadium, killing thirty eight people. A club spokesman said, We're sure Besiktas will do everything necessary. They have a lot of experience in hosting away teams in Europe. Israel's next World Cup qualifier against Spain will take place in a city which imposes a blanket boycott of Israel. Gijon will host the match on the twenty fourth of March, with an unnamed Israeli government official saying it makes us sick that the team has to come and play in a place that is boycotting the state of Israel. And finally, Hendon United A's hopes of winning a third consecutive Peter Morrison trophy were ended after they were beaten 1-0 by London Lions Masters. Manager David Garbatch said, The whole squad, including myself, cannot remember Ever coming off a pitch so incredibly disappointed to lose a game? Remember, you can catch up on all the latest Jewish sport at www.jewishnews.co.uk.
0: Adam, thank you very much indeed. Well, welcome along to this edition of The Jewish Views. I'm Phil Dave. Let's start off, as we always do, with a look through your copy of The Jewish News for this week. Joining me to go through it is news editor Justin Cohen and features editor Fran Wolfish. Welcome to you both. Justin, as ever, let us take a glance at the front page, shall we, with a nice bold headline that reads, finally, some good news to end a gloomy year.
3: Yes, well I think it is about time that we had a bit of good news to cheer and we've gone for the headline uh, Hip Hip Hooray and those those three headlines relate to the adoption by the government this week of a new definition against anti-semitism which they hope will encourage authorities and make sure that people can't get away with being anti-semitic. Now the definition is clearer and and broader as well. We had the banning the following day of the neo-nazi group national action under new terror laws and also of course this week we saw the defeat by some considerable margin of a candidate that was pro BDS in the UJS elections and some that was obviously causing people
0: quite a lot of concern it does seem quite extraordinary though you don't really sort of think along those lines when it comes to any governmental body in the Jewish community that anyone could be pro BDS. It doesn't really sort of strike a chord somehow. And yet, of course, there are those who do support boycotting Israel in the community.
4: Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I don't think it's a bad thing that we let their voices be heard, setting there's a place for free speech. At the same time, I think a body like UJS needs (coughs) to have someone perhaps who is supportive of Israel shall we say and something like this might be considered not helpful in generally tackling anti-Israel feeling on campus?
0: Well, I was going to say over the past year, we've certainly seen it feature a heck of a lot in the news that there has been a lot of anti-Israel feeling for Jewish students to contend with. And somehow it might have been a rather unfortunate cherry on an even more unfortunate cake if we would have seen a pro-BDS president of the UGS elected. But all the same, he wasn't. And that is one of the reasons why you cheer. And what's the other reason that we cheer? Sorry.
3: Yeah, I think that talking of of BDS, the Prime Minister gave the keynote address to the Conservative Friends of Israel lunch, a record-breaking 800 people, including more than 200 parliamentarians, descended on Westminster for Monday's lunch. Prime Minister's speech covered a wide range of issues. I've already mentioned the decision by the government to adopt a new definition the definition of the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance. Which I should stress
0: we're going to find out about more later in the programme. So sorry to interrupt, but do carry on.
3: Yes, that was probably the big news line. But there were many other topics she, she discussed. This was her first keynote address to a communal or Israel gathering since she became Prime Minister. And talking of BDS, she, she couldn't have been clearer about the gov- how the government will have no truck for boycott. She spoke about the upcoming centenary of the Balfour Declaration. And there's been some question marks over how the government would would acknowledge it we've had comments that of course concern from the Middle East minister on this subject in the past couple of weeks but she was very very clear that the government will mark the anniversary of what she described as pride she said the Balfour Declaration was one of the most important letters in history so all this is pretty great stuff for a pro-israel audience she also spoke about post-Brexit and how she's hoping to extend that burgeoning trade relationship. So, yeah, much to cheer and, as you'd expect, a long-standing
0: ovation. Indeed. Well, there you go. So that's what has happened on the front page. But let's turn inside the paper now. Something else BDS could stand for, I suppose, is been and done Spain. Justin, you've been to Spain. Why? Why? that was good do you see I thought yeah, that, that, was was really really
4: that was quite good. quick I that was really really good that was really nice <laughs> do you know yeah, what I'm it's taken
0: that. me all yeah. year to come up with something remotely clever where were you
4: mind. when we needed headlines that's I'm so sorry we?
0: I'm so sorry Phil I, anyway. hope, I hope that's going to go into next
3: week's highlight show from the year cause that it was, will was
4: yeah. <laughs> I think it may well make the highlights
0: <laughs> anyway I do apologise why have you been to Spain Justin <laughs> yes so I, I uh,
3: returned from the Jewish media summit where I spent uh, the week with our esteemed editor Richard and then within 24 hours I was back on the plane Uh, to Madrid, and I went to join the uh, Conference of European Rabbis who were honoring the King of Spain, Felipe VI, for his support for the community, for his support for Israel. And in particular, as Many of our listeners will be aware of the country in the last year has changed a law which enables those who can prove their descendants were among those expelled from Spain in 1492 to regain citizenship and to hold dual citizenship, which is also quite a unique thing in the Spanish system quite a moving occasion Uh, members of the local spanish community members of civic society faith leaders and about 40 rabbis from across europe were present and the king wasn't expected to speak in english at all expected just to speak in spanish apparently that's what happens within within the palace but yeah he he broke from tradition and spoke for at least a couple of minutes in english very very movingly very powerfully and then held a reception for about an hour afterwards
0: and did you get the chance to meet his majesty did you I did. Oh. I did. how did you know that? Well, I just it was just a a whim. Call it a whim. Yes. And not a production meeting before the podcast was recorded.
3: Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I actually had an opportunity just to say to him that how much people from from English speaking countries who were there appreciated the fact that he spoke in English and it was clear that it was it was more than just another event for him. He he kind of had a, a great passion for what he was doing and yeah it was a really good event
4: all in all good week to be Jewish I think you know it's well certainly a good I week know. to be Justin well, Cohen
0: I've never anything like, like it he's Jep just Setter setting a, all over Jep the place Setter Cohen. so I where are you know. headed off to next Fran
4: well oh my Orm gosh Wood. just so <laughs> exciting I know
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh dear, oh dear. Right, something else that we should look at from the paper this week is that JFS has been in the news and it's because that they have been upgraded as far as Ofsted is concerned.
4: Two years ago, the school was dramatically downgraded. And I think we can say dramatically because a lot of people were shocked by it to requiring improvement. And I think, you know, it's such a shame really for the school because it is Europe's largest Jewish school. And... We like to think that the schools in our community can provide a really great education for our children. So I think it sort of saddens and shocks a lot of people. But they have made the turnaround and they've now earned a good rating, which I'm sure will please not only the, the students there, but also lots of parents and, of course, the teachers and the governors at the school. But is
0: there anything wrong with JFS being kept on the proverbial toes, as it were? Because now that they've been given that boot up, the derriere, it just goes to show that they have turned things around and they are improving standards. So possibly this was some sort of, what's the quote, blessing in disguise in some weird way because they've managed to maintain the standards that the community has come to expect from JFS and other Jewish schools. Yeah,
3: I, th- I think this is, this is great news because of the school be- having such a big name within the community and within Europe, within Jewish education, and to have a school that had been downgraded by two steps, not just the one, but two steps, To be back on on a good level is very welcoming. There was also specific praise as outstanding for programmes for 16 to 19-year-olds specifically. We have to recognise that this is under a whole new leadership, really. A whole new team was brought in. They seem to have made an immediate impact. Their their praise specifically for their leadership and for the the behaviour levels and so on are praised within this report. Uh, They say, they acknowledge that the report also includes recommendations for further improvement. They say that it's pleasing, the school says it's pleasing that, that some of those recommendations were already in train in terms of actually
0: bringing in change. So we shall watch this space and hopefully they can move back to outstanding next time. Indeed we will. Well, Mazel's off to JFS for going up a level and here's hoping that they continue to progress in 2017. Just before we round up, why, Fran, is there a traitor in our midst?
4: Well, yes. I read a really fascinating book this week, actually. Paul Bogdanor... Researcher and author from Bournemouth has written a book called Kastner's Crime. For the last 10 years, he's been researching into a man who was dubbed the Jewish Oscar Schindler, Rudolf Kastner, who was a Hungarian Jew who apparently helped save 1,684 fellow Hungarian Jews on the so-called specially arranged Kastner train. However, there were rumors circulating for decades after the war that he'd actually collaborated with the Nazis. Paul Bogdanor actually set out to try and disprove these rumors. And the research that he came across suggested otherwise, that actually he possibly did collaborate with the Nazis. And not only that, in return for saving the 1,684 Jews, he deliberately deceived hundreds of thousands of other Jews There's a figure here of up to nearly 800,000 Jews to board the trains, which ultimately took them to Auschwitz. So quite a sad story, really.
0: Sounds fascinating. And your review of that is on what page?
4: That is the front of the lifestyle section on page 19.
0: So you can read that in this week's paper as well. But I'm afraid that is where we have to leave it for a review of the paper for this week. And indeed, the final paper review of 2016. But thank you both very much indeed. More on that a little later on. Don't forget that you can pick up your copy of The Jewish News every Thursday across London, or you can read the e-version online at jewishnews.co.uk. As you've already heard, the UK is to become one of the first countries to individually adopt the definition of anti-Semitism in accordance to the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance. Prime Minister Theresa May made the announcement earlier this week at the Conservative Friends of Israel's annual lunch in central London. To find out more about it, I've been speaking to Michael Newman, the chief executive of the AJR, who also happens to be a delegate for the IHRA. I started by asking him, what
5: is the official definition of anti-Semitism? Well, the IHRA is the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance, and at the plenary meeting in May 2016, we adopted a definition, a working definition of anti-Semitism, which is to quote, anti-Semitism is a certain perception of Jews which may be expressed as hatred towards Jews, Rhetorical and physical manifestations of anti-Semitism are directed towards Jewish or non-Jewish individuals and or their property, toward Jewish community institutions and religious facilities.
0: So that's the definition, but who, as you say, we came up with it, who is we? Can you tell us a little bit about the IHRA?
5: IRA is a international organisation consisting of 31 member countries. The UK, together with Sweden and the United States, were Founding members back in 1998 99, which then led on to the Stockholm Declaration of 2000, which is a series of commitments that member countries make to advancing Holocaust research, to remembering the Holocaust, to educating future generations about the Holocaust. So there are three main tenets to the work of IRA education, remembrance, and research.
0: And I'm guessing that in terms of sort of your role, it's fairly obvious why you're involved, obviously, Association of Jewish Refugees. And could you tell us a bit about some of the other delegates in the UK?
5: Yes, well, each delegation, first of all, the IRA is made up of two levels. There's a political level, and then there's what's called the experts level. And it's a way of joining together political leaders and professionals in the field of education, remembrance and research to jointly advance and further holocaust memorialization so each country each member country has a national delegation which is comprised of academics and professionals in the field of education those working in museums archives and so on so the uk delegation is made up of colleagues from the holocaust educational trust from the institute of education there's an academic from Scotland. There's an academic based at Cambridge. Ben Helfgott is a member. Olivia Marks Waldman from the Holocaust Memorial Day Trust is a member of the Museums and Memorials Working Group. And together, we help bring issues that we think are important to the UK and share them with colleagues from other countries using IRA as a platform.
0: And so how often do IRA members, whether they be academics, whether they be politicians, whoever they are, how often do they all come together in terms of discussing matters relevant to IRA's
5: cause? There are two plenaries each year, two four-day plenaries, and the chairmanship of IRA rotates annually. So at the moment, we're in the middle of the Romanian chairmanship. In 2014, the UK chaired it, led by Sir Andrew Burns. Now the UK delegation is led by Sir Eric Pickles. And throughout the year, depending on which of the four working groups that you are a member of, there will be other projects and activities that you will be doing. So at the moment, I'm chairing one of those four groups, the communication working group, number of projects we're working on specifically to create and build a new website in 2017, but also to improve communication generally about what we do.
0: Well, you mentioned Sir Eric Pickles. Now, Sir Eric Pickles is obviously associated with Conservative Friends of Israel for obvious reasons, but perhaps you could tell us because it was there at the annual lunch that Prime Minister Theresa May announced the fact that the UK is going to officially adopt, recognise, whatever you want to call it, the definition that you so eloquently put at the beginning of this interview. What do you think that's going to do in combating anti-Semitism in this country?
5: Well, beyond it being hugely symbolic, because it's the first UK, we're in this very proud position now to be the first country to formally adopt the working definition, but the working definition is something that was put together by colleagues from around the world who are experts in combating and analysing anti-Semitism as a way of Drawing a clear line in the sand that this is something that needs specifically addressing as a standalone issue and in the process getting governments to commit themselves to combating and addressing the problem.
0: So one would assume then the idea is to get other member countries to follow suit?
5: Yes. That's very much the idea. Each member country was very much as a part as being a part of IRA, their duties and responsibility is to adopt all the measures, all the definitions, all the pieces of work that come out of IRA, just as they did when they joined by committing themselves to the tenets of the Stockholm Declaration.
0: But there is a bit of misunderstanding about this, and I think there's something that's a bit unclear. It's not necessarily going to be etched in law, is it? But it's more about officially recognising, and there is a difference between the two, isn't there?
5: Yeah, I think later on it could be used as a measure in law but this is a non-legally binding working definition. So it gives agencies that work in this field very clear uh, expression, description of the subject that they're dealing with. It gives everybody a greater understanding that there is a problem and it needs addressing. And in the process, it commits a government to addressing a problem in society.
0: And is this a cross-party, do we know, or is this at the moment just something the Conservatives are backing?
5: I'm almost certain it would have cross-party backing in the same way that other initiatives, the Parliamentary Council Against Anti-Semitism is cross-party, for example. So the intention is very much that countries commit themselves, whether that's governments or agencies, to the working definition.
0: Now, as far as the work that IRA does, hopefully this will go some way to help promoting that work and helping... To recognise it. Moving forward, what is IRA's, I suppose, long term vision? I mean, I guess that ideally would be to wipe anti Semitism off the face of the planet, which I know we could all hope would happen one day. But what's the realistic goal set out by IRA as an
5: organisation? Combating anti Semitism is one part of IRA's work. The main goals and objectives are to advance and shape holocaust education holocaust remembrance to inculcate in society cultures of remembrance education systems to mark sites of mass killing to help countries develop programs initiatives projects that can advance holocaust memorialization whether that's unlocking and sharing archives whether that's helping to mark mass graves or whether that's sharing a best practice in putting together an education program for training teachers of the Holocaust. There are a number of international efforts that IRA is directly engaged in that will help advance all aspects of Holocaust remembrance and education.
0: Chief Executive of the Association of Jewish Refugees, Michael Newman, talking to me there about the UK becoming one of the first countries to officially adopt the IHRA's definition of anti-Semitism, as announced by Prime Minister Theresa May this week. You're listening to The Jewish Views in association with The Jewish News. Still to come on this edition, Clive Roslin will be here for our Jewish schmooze. Today, Clive and Adam will be joined by journalist and author Jeremy Havadi and the voice that is Jeremy Jacobs. They'll be discussing Jewish festive food, just in time for Hanukkah. Plus, Diana Toman will be speaking to Rabbi Danny Bergson about the 75th anniversary of his congregation, Pinna United. But first, as we hurtle towards the end of the year, it can only mean one thing. Yes, it's time for the annual Limud Conference. The event takes place from Sunday the 25th to Thursday the 29th of December, and it sees speakers from all walks of Jewish life come together. Entertainment and culture reporter Kate Fulton has been finding out more for us by speaking to Ella Rose and Ben Crown from Limud. Kate started by asking Ben to remind us what Limud actually is. Limud's a volunteer-run
6: UK-based organisation which organises a variety of sort of cultural and educational events in the UK and around the world. The largest event in the event which I'm involved in running is Limud Conference, which happens every December up in Birmingham this year. We're going to bring about two and a half to 3,000 people together, about 800 presenters, about 1,200 sessions, on really every aspect of, sort of Jewish life, Jewish history, Torah, arts and culture, communities.
7: Okay. So, when did Limud start and what, what, was, the, what was the impetus?
6: Uh, Limud started in, I think, 1980. It sprang out of an American conference called the Conference for Alternatives in Jewish Education. So it started off more as an educator based an educator run event but it became very clear quite quickly there was sort of a a niche or an area in the community for sort of a non-hierarchical volunteer led event that didn't concern itself and sort of stood apart from denominational and political struggles. So it's
7: non-denominational learning presumably or has it a social aspect to it as well?
8: It's definitely a social aspect. It was described by uh, one of the papers, non-Jewish papers, a couple of years back, as the Jewish Edinburgh Fringe. So you'll get loads of people that will go juggling. Know, off. <laughs> I've not seen a juggler, but we'd love to have a session on on juggling if there's a Jewish element. But you've got loads of people that will go for the sessions, and then you've got loads of people that will just sit in a coffee shop, in a bar, chat, chill, make friends. It's you know part of their Jewish experience for the year. So anyone listening who's thinking, actually, I quite found I'm not doing much around the the festive. Period. Period.
7: People, are, people can still go, presumably, for I tell...
8: 100%. Right? Still so got, still- there's always spaces available at Limud. It's something that's very special. It's a community. So,
7: so you can decide you want to go. And if you're on your own, you're not going with a group, you're not even particularly affiliated to any community...
6: I mean, there's a decent chunk of people who come to MUD for whom that's their only main involvement in the Jewish community. Lots of people who live in the regions, in places with small or no Jewish communities, and a bunch of people who live in London and have a sort of a a more secular or cultural Jewish identity will come to Limud to sort of enjoy that aspect of things. We have an inclusion team and a social programming team who try and take us care as much as we can. Of. So
8: you notice people who are on their yeah. own, you scoop yes. them up. One of the things you can do when you, you sign up is, I am, you know, coming to Limerick by myself and you'll get paired with a buddy if you want a buddy. There's, like, social programming where you, like, a you know, mingle for people of this age group or, you know, something very specifically for people. But it's so... Easy to meet. I went to Limwood on my own the first year I went. I literally just made friends like walking from one session to another. uh, People who you know I don't see around, but I'll see at Limwood and be like, "Hey, how are you?" Like it's great to see like my Limwood people. That's great. And and so when you decide you're going to go, you have to sign up. And is it expensive? There's a whole piece about you know, actually what you get for your money if you're going from Sunday through Thursday you're getting 15 kosher meals, four nights in a four star hotel, maybe more depending on where you're staying and access to 1,400 sessions, I think. So it must so be a big thing to put on. I'll come on to that in a minute. Yeah, I want to so how you put that on. It is, but for it, the person who wants to go, you don't have to go for that whole time. Nope. There's short stays, there's day stays, there's non-residential, there's nicer accommodation, there's cheaper accommodation. They've done a lot of work on, you know, making sure that Anyone and everyone inclusive. can attend,
6: 100%. We expect a sizable proportion of the Birmingham Jewish community to just rock up on the day. You know, the programme's live now, so people can have a look at what's on, pick a day which looks good, and show up.
7: On a typical day, what happens? You get
8: up in the morning, or you come from wherever you, you live, and what, are have given a programme, or how's it so work? So the programme's online, you get given a handbook when you come, and we've got an app, so you literally just look through the programme and think, that sounds fun, I'll go to that, and then go to some sessions chill for a bit go to some more sessions volunteer we've got give us an hour which is we're hoping people just you know volunteer for an hour you could go to a performance you could go to a panel debate you could go to a learning session there's some session on like pickles there's literally two some, sessions on pickles two sessions there's something, wow. for, something, something for everybody you know yeah. the pickles people out there
7: and how did you pick the programme? I mean, you've, if, you, if you're going to be inclusive, then you, presumably you've got people from the United Synagogue, and Masorti, mm. and Reform, and Liberal. How did you? How did you all get together? Tell me how it came together. This programme.
6: The programming team is about twenty people. It's run by uh, three chairs, and they divide up the program by tracks. We sort of pick up people over time, I suppose, that some people who are involved this year have never been involved before. There are people who have been involved for eight or 10 years. People just come to the mud, think, well, this is something that I'd like to be involved with. They speak to someone who's involved at the bar. There's an option in various places, just express an interest in being involved. And then that's how we put together the team for the next year.
8: And in terms of denominations, we've got, you know, all four major synagogue movements represented. We've got Chief Rabbi Mervis, we've got Rabbi Laura, the senior rabbi of the reform movement. We've really, we've got something for everyone. And interesting you say Rabbi Laura. I heard everyone
7: has to only use their first name. Is that, is that some sort of urban myth?
6: Limud is a sort of non-hierarchical organisation doesn't really do... Titles formally that everyone who's in the program is there with their first name, uh, whether it's the chief rabbi, whether it's sort of Sir David King, the you know, the government's environment and climate change uh, czar, and that's sort of a policy we have and is embedded in our values to make everyone feel like they're sort of everyone's on the same level. That every presenter should also be a participant, and any participant we believe should be a presenter if they want.
7: Give me some highlights. I mean, I know they're all highlights and everything is going to be perfect. on A few things that you imagine will be a big draw this year.
8: I mean, for me, I I work them into politics. There's some incredible political sessions. We've got two different MPs involved in the programme, as well as Sir David King and Lord Glassman. David. Uh, No, for (laughs) me, still Sir David. When I meet him, I'll be like, hey, David. There's some amazing panels talking about Labour and Jews and the relationship with the Jewish community and the Labour Party. Luciana Berger, MP as we shall say here, but not on her name badge, is running three sessions. There's some really incredible stuff there.
7: Apart from pickles, what, what other things do you enjoy?
6: There's a wide range, I would say, of sort of Torah-based sessions from educators and rabbis and academics across the world. I'm looking forward in particular, I suppose, to Eitan Tucker, who's a Rosh Yeshiva in New York, who runs this sort of non-denominational, cross-communal Yeshiva. I'm looking forward to... Michael Mark Epstein who's a sort of scholar of uh, of Jewish arts and Jewish manuscripts, he's going to be doing a series on uh, sort of the subversive implications of various famous Jewish texts and uh, non-Jewish works of art that involve Jews. There's a great lineup of performers. And yeah, the, I'm, well, yeah,
8: Ben and I have very different interest. I probably will not go to any Torah <laughs> sessions. Ones. I'm looking forward to the performances. The Robertson's Disco is always a highlight Describe for Describe
7: that, because that's interesting
8: as a uh, concept. It, yeah, it's essentially a disco DJed by Robertsons. <laughs> DJed, not just for women? No, not just for women. <laughs> ah. DJ'd by Robertson's. Do Salsa are this amazing like French community of performers who kind of mix klezmer and salsa. I just love going to all this like random performance stuff, and it's just such a laugh. Um, I'm really, and there's also some great, you know, Israel-based programming as well. with the Jewish community; we can't really escape the Israel debate. We've got Peter Lerner, who's known for being the IDF spokesperson to the English foreign media, Avi Mayer, who's the spokesperson from the Jewish Agency, and then we've got all of the Jewish community organisations discussing and debating Israel, which is something you know I've worked in and, and love.
0: Ella Rose and Ben Crown talking to entertainment and culture reporter Kate Fulton there about this year's Limud Conference. For more information, then you can go to limud.org. L-I-M-M-U-D, limud.org. Coming up in just a moment will be this week's Schmooze. Before that, there's just time to tell you that this will be our last regular show for 2016. Over the next couple of weeks, we'll be bringing you some of the highlights from the past year, featuring some of our favourite guests and our more interesting discussions. So that's the best of The Jewish Views from next week. Don't forget, if you would like to get involved, though, we would love to hear your Jewish views. You can email studio at jewishviews.co.uk or you can contact us via social media. Find us on Facebook by going to facebook.com forward slash jewishviews or on Twitter. We are at jewishviews.uk. Now, Pinna United has been marking a rather impressive anniversary. The community is 75 years old. To celebrate this, members of the Cecil Park Congregation took part in an Adonna Lumathon. To find out exactly what that involved and more about the synagogue itself, community reporter Diana Toman has been speaking to Rabbi Danny Bergson from Pinner United. Diana started by asking Rabbi Bergson to tell us what exactly is an Lamathon.
9: Uh, the let's say it a donal no, <laughs> I've been you're practicing a bit more practiced than I am. Yes, i very practiced yes. for a number of months, and a, a lot of a lot of work. A number of months I've gone into creating the Adon Um There was two members of our community, Doreen Samuels, who's actually also a trustee of the United Synagogue, as well as Ashley Reese, one of our younger members, uh, who together put this idea together. And the idea was to bring the community together to different parts, diverse elements of the community, to sing 75 tunes to Adon Alam, which is apparently an unofficial world record. (laughs) Uh, And simply celebrate being Jewish in the 21st century. And in particular, locally having had a history, a rich history of 75 years in, in this synagogue. Well, on not, this spot, not literally in this spot. I was going to say, um, yes. The, the synagogue grew out of the Harrow community, but I don't c- claim to be the expert uh, historian on that. But, you know, 75 years is is
10: a long time, and it's wonderful to celebrate that. It um, is indeed. Tell me, how did, earth did you manage to find 75 different... I mean, a lot of synagogues have their own favourites, but for one synagogue to have managed to get together 75 different tunes for the one prayer. So
9: the organisers uh, sent out the message and they collated different ideas, different groups formed. So different parts of the community, whether it was an educational committee, the board, the Mariah school got involved. So different groups had different musical tastes, ranging from traditional Jewish music to Israeli tunes that are familiar to out and out pure secular music. That's the rage at the moment and uh, bringing it together. And again, uh, I think it's beautiful that we had at the end of the day different, so many different types of people coming together who didn't know each other, who didn't, hadn't necessarily met before, coming together and singing the same words. To me, that's very powerful.
10: The words are, of course, I- I- inevitable, but how did you manage to match them to the, the different types of tunes? I mean, some of these tunes are, <laughs> are really secular, aren't they? I've always believed that music itself
9: is not a secular concept it's the words perhaps that maybe may make something secular music is part of creation so you can transform any any music musical motif and idea into something holy. In fact, much of uh, our liturgy today is sung to uh, music which is not necessarily coming from a a quintessentially Jewish
10: source, for example, the classical composers. Who chose? I mean, you couldn't have had a judging panel as such, but you must have... Did you have to filter through a great deal more than... 75 different versions. No, it was a challenge to get the 75. In oh, fact, I think we
9: even had more than 75 tunes. It was about each person, each group coming together and and finding a way to express themselves so, and which really reflects what what's what's so brilliant about Pinner Shul as a whole. Uh, it's a community which is not top down so much. It doesn't take a top down approach to what do you the mean community, by a rather down? a bottom up bottom up approach. It wants to allow different groups to express themselves within an orthodox framework, we are an orthodox synagogue, but we want people to come with their ideas, sharing their voice. So it wasn't like, you know, these are the 75 tunes, sign up to which one you're going to sing. It was very much, come, we need 75 tunes. So there was a little bit of worry, I suppose, (laughs) you know, were we going to make the 75? But I think this event really reflects something about our community. We always come All right. It's all right on the night.
10: (laughs) Have you got other celebrations
9: for the 75th year? That marked the conclusion of the 75 celebrations. We decided actually over the whole year to have a a diverse, a a different number of uh, celebrations. So we had the uh, amazing fun run where we went to the Roger Bannister Centre and took over there and had lots of activities. We had, of course, the gala dinner, which included the chief rabbi and entertainment. And of course, we've recently just celebrated Shabbat UK. And our particular 75th theme there was a women's education program known as the WOW program, which is Women of Worth. And they were concluding their program, which was also done in honor of the 75th. And that's just a few of the big things that we've done this year. year. It's been a very, very busy (laughs) year.
10: Do you think you're going to take this forward in any way? I now mean, you're going to have Adana sung 75 different ways in all the future services. Well, we or could what? have an Anim Zemiris-a-thon, <laughs> or a <Right>. Dal-a-na-thon. <laughs> I don't know,
9: something. Uh, it seems a
10: pity to leave them all behind once you're 700, once you're 176. We've actually received, I mean. more than
9: any other event that we've done this year. The Adana Lom-a-thon started off with a lot of people actually sort of thinking, "What is this? They weren't sure what it was exactly," and from people being quite unsure about it, we've had incredible feedback post the event and people saying, not that we should repeat that particular event again or something even similar, but the concept of finding a fun Jewish, fun cultural event that can bring every member of the community together from, from the very, very young. And we had a choir with... Uh, four five year uh, five year olds uh, singing in in it all the way to to people in who are much older in their, in their 70s and 80s yes. uh, to have an event like that for our community is very very important yes. and so we want to i think we will be looking for ideas again we'll be throwing out the challenge to the community
0: that's how we work here everybody chips in and gets involved Rabbi Danny Bergson from Pinner United Synagogue talking to community reporter Diana Toman there about his congregation's 75th anniversary celebrations. You're listening
1: to The Jewish Views, and this is The Jewish Schmooze, the part of the show where studio guests join me, Clive Roslin, to discuss matters that you've been hearing throughout the programme so far. And joining Adam Bradley and me today is journalist and author Jeremy Havadi and the voice that is Jeremy Jacobs. We have a nice light-hearted subject today. We thought, given that Jewish domestic goddess Denise Phillips will be giving us a delicious recipe for Hanukkah a little later on, we talk about Jewish festive food. Well, food is nearly always associated with most of our festivals and with Jewish food everywhere. The question is, what are our personal favourites and what does Jewish food actually mean to us? If you're watching the schmooze live, then please do feel free to join in the discussion and post your comments. We'll try and read some of them out as we go along. Well, Jeremy Jacobs, let's start with you. What Mm. does Jewish food mean to you, not only as a definition, but personally?
11: That's an excellent question, Clive. Hi, all my questions Um, are. Of course, of course. I was going to be flippant and say putting on weight, but no. I would say Jewish food isn't the healthiest around, but it is lovely, isn't it? I mean, you can't beat a good salt beef sandwich, can you? Oh, uh, oh yeah. you can. Oh, you can. Anyway, let's of good, a bit, a bit of good, uh, uh, or mozzarella or something. But it's okay, look, it's tradition. It's, it's a throwback to your childhood, and it's something which is, you've always you've grown up with. It might not be the healthiest, but it's part of our culture.
1: Well, now, just think about right now. Very soon, it'll be Chris Nuka. And in fact, Christmas Day and Hanukkah yes. be- happen on the same day, the 25th of December. And the Jewish way is to eat donuts, is it not?
11: It is, but I don't. I tend to lay off the donuts nowadays, Clive. Why? You know? Well, it's sugar. I mean, sugar is the new tobacco, isn't it? Really. And uh, you've got to be very careful what you eat. Look, I suppose one every now and again is fine, but. I wouldn't have one any day, every yeah, mo- day.
2: Most of our festivals, the food's fairly unhealthy. The specific food for the festivals, because I'm guessing it's a celebration. And, you know, when, you, when you're celebrating, you think, oh, I'll have another piece of cake. Or uh, Normally, our, our food is, I think it's relatively healthy. You think there's a lot of Israeli salads and hummus oh. and falafels. And Shavuot, yeah, oh, you eat, you eat oh. milk food, yeah.
1: cheese, blintzes. I mean, they're all very healthy things.
11: It depends on the they're prepared. That will you say so? I, I, Jeremy, okay. you've
12: been very quiet. I do think that Jewish food is important. I, I agree with what the other Jeremy has said here, that uh, it's not always the healthiest. And I don't think our cuisine is remotely comparable to you know, the finest cuisine that you would get from, from other countries around the world. But there is something special about it. And I think Jeremy, in a way, touched on this point, which is that it kind of takes you back to your childhood. There's something very traditional about it. You know, you remember those times when you're sitting around the table and you're having your wonderful Friday night chicken soup with canade and your fish balls and your filter fish and, and all this sort of thing. And it's it's very much about a social experience. The food itself can be very tasty. It can be very nice. But I think when I, when I sort of remember those times when I was having those kind of meals with the traditional Jewish food... And not just, of course, on a Friday night, it might also be, you know, sort of around the table over Purim, over over Pesach. You think of it very much as a social experience, that you are sharing this food with all those things that are constitutive of our our festivals. And in a way, that makes it all more special. I think the rest of the time, we enjoy, uh, throughout history, we enjoy the cuisine of the country that we happen to be living in. And we've always, I think historically, we've always adapted the cuisine of the countries we've lived in and given it a kind of Jewish dimension, if you like, using our various cultural practices. I think that's very
2: much the case with Jewish foods, because you look around at the different types of Jews. There are the Yemenites, the Ashkenazi, the Sephardi. You know, they all have their food is heavily influenced by the countries that they've emigrated to, which is interesting because when Israel started in 1948, when there was three quarters of a million immigrants there, they all brought so many different foods together. So it wasn't that here's the Jewish state, so let's all bring our Jewish food. It was just food from all over the world. As we do the way we integrate within societies that we live in, we take on their cultures as well. And and as Jeremy said, we give it a little twist and kind of make it our
11: own as well. Sure, sure. Having said that, one can't help but thinking that we... I It's a shame we're not a little bit more healthier, though. I'm surprised it's not been more creativity. I mean, the salt beef sandwich has always been a salt beef sandwich, but perhaps we can sort of, you know, morph into something else. Or can, I, you, can you see what I'm saying? Yeah, I it's, think the health it, things, is... though, I think, I think the health side of it, though, is that
2: in Ashkenazi traditions, they were living in very cold East European climates, so <laughs> they actually had to eat lots of fatty food, schmaltz and latkes and everything that's deep fried. Now, they needed that food because they needed the fat to keep them warm. Whereas you look at Sephardi dishes, completely different. It's yeah. actually quite healthy. And when, funnily enough, when Israel started, they decided that Ashkenazi was more common. But then they kind of realised that Sephardi food's more fitting for Israel because it's Mediterranean food. It's based on food that's in the area. And it's based on food that's not going to make you as fat. But food is much more
1: important than that. Jewish food goes with the festivals, which is absolutely obvious. And every festival you have a special sort of food. And it has nothing to do with whether it's good for you or bad for you. At Purim you have special food, at Sukkot you have special food, at Passover you certainly have special food. That's what we want to concentrate on. Not the fatty foods or the, the stuff you eat, the soup you eat, the fish you eat. It's the stuff that is actually eaten by Jews and Jews enjoy food and stop talking about whether it's good for you or bad for you. It just is something that is essentially Jewish.
12: And I think in that sense, you could say that food is is associated with the collective memory or collective yes. identity. Yeah. So the food that you have, you know, you mentioned, obviously, with Passover, we do attach enormous significance. And every Jew doesn't matter how religious they are, doesn't matter how whether they're Orthodox, Reform or, or what have you. Jews will know from even just being at one Pesach, one Seder, they will know what each food represents. They'll know about its special significance. They'll know about the religious significance. And that, I think, is very important because, as I say, it's a kind of repository of of the collective memory of the people.
2: Exactly. I'd say it originates more from the idea that Jews, as a rule, part of being Jewish is to elevate the mundane, the ordinary, to become... To a higher level, because we're appreciating the gifts that we've been given. Now, Jews make a prayer over everything we eat, or the more religious people will make a prayer over everything they eat. There's nothing more ordinary than food. It's essentially just fuel. But a lot of people eat food just just to keep them going, just to eat food. Whereas we actually put a great deal of focus on food because it's thanking the planet, God, whatever you want to, but it's appreciating that there's something greater. And I think that's often why we have so many symbolic foods. Look at the Bible. I mean, how many of those stories in the Bible are based on food? Adam and Eve ate the apple. Jacob and Esau, they gave a bowl of lentils for his birthright. Almost every story is based on Jacob in prison his his dreams were about food you know it, it's it's incredible how synonymous
12: Jews are with food and, and whereas just to add to that as well whereas food is obviously important for all cultures how important is it for Judaism when you consider the demands of kashrus there are so many different rules and so many different regulations. You know, in that sense, the rules that govern food and how you prepare food and how you eat food and what foods you can and can't have, all of that is such an, an important part of Jewish religious identity that I think it feeds into everything else as well.
2: Mm. Now, let's take the festivals. What do we eat specially at Purim? Well, hamantaschen, really, isn't it? The yes. little triangular biscuits. Mm. Yes. Now, yeah. why? Why that, then? Well, hamantaschen means Haman's ears or Haman's pocket. So I'm guessing it's memorial of the occasion. Oh, that's right. And it's occasion. got poppy
1: seed in it, which is mm. meant to be what you find inside people's ears. Is that it? Oh, oh, not not in mine. <laughs> oh, maybe in yours, Clive. <laughs> yes, no, it is. It's absolutely the fact. It's, and oh, that's dear. why you also have cheese in the Right. Yeah,
11: okay. right. chocolate as so well.
1: Uh, Pesach we've covered.
11: Okay, can we move right, on? Right,
1: now we come to Shavuot.
2: <laughs> what happens there? Well, Shavuot? the uh, cheese. Dairy. Mm, dairy Cheesecake, mm. cheese blintzes. Now, why? Well, that's because at Shavuot, we received the Torah, and we didn't actually know the laws of Kashrus in enough detail to be able to eat meat. So, when we received it, before learning Kashrus, there was kind of a blanket rule, okay, let's just leave meat out of the equation now, until we we're more versed on the laws of Kashrus. So, they ate dairy. So, they kept well away from it. So, we remember it by doing what they did. And it's, it's quite a sobering thought to know that the food we eat on Passover on Shavuot, is, is the same as our ancestors would have eaten You know, during some of their darkest times. And it, it sort of links us with our past and with our ancestors. Well, there we are. That's what you're saying. And so what, what do
1: we eat when what comes next? Sukkot, I suppose, is in it. Rosh Hashanah. You eat
11: apples and honey, don't you? And the fruit you haven't had in the previous twelve months, and pomegranates,
12: mm, yeah, right? pomegranates—things yeah, that are all sweet,
2: yeah—which so, apparently they say has got six hundred and thirteen seeds in a pomegranate,
12: which is, is the really?
2: equivalent of the mitzvahs in the Torah. That's apparently, crazy. so I've never counted them myself, but that's, that, that's, that's, that's a job for you this weekend. Well,
11: well, what what we're proving anything. now is that what you were saying <laughs> earlier is
1: not really true. Then the food is not unhealthy.
11: Look, pomegranates, I'm sure are wonderful for you, of course. I'm just saying that you've got to be sensible. And uh, so you've got this balance between having respect
12: and and, and courtesy for our uh, ancestry. But you've got to look after yourself as well. But partly it's a matter of of definition, though, Clive, because Mm. there's a difference between the foods that we associate with specific Jewish festivals. If that's defined as Jewish food, then you're right. But on the other hand, when you you say to people, what do you associate with Jewish cuisine? I think they're going to think of a much broader range of things. Mm. And that includes a lot of the food, that, as I've said, was taken by Jews from the cultures that they were living in and then adapted and given a Jewish twist. In the case of Sephardi Jews, a lot of it was about various different types of salad, seeds and so on. In the case of Ashkenazi Jews, a lot of it was about fish um, in various varieties and... A lot of people would say that food is, yes, it's very Jewish food because they associate that with Jewish traditional eating habits, if you like.
2: I think so you're right. I think that the food we eat day to day identifies us more than the food we eat at the festivals because the food we eat at the festivals, we're commanded to eat it. It's a historical remembrance of an occasion, whereas the food we eat day to day, that's how we've developed over time. That That's more our identity rather than being told to eat something that's where we've gone out and showed our kind of creativity with food, rather than being told you must eat cheese at Shavuot and so on. If you talk to any medical person, they will tell you that, for example, chopped liver,
1: chopped herring, chicken soup, all those things are really very good for you.
11: They are. I was was thinking about latkes, for example, which I'll never have anymore. But yeah, no, chicken soup's okay. Well, why are
1: latkes unhealthy?
11: Fattening. They're deep
2: fried. Deep fried,
11: for number one. Well, it depends how many you eat. That's true. You no, no, can no no, 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 no. The, the same, ar- same argument as, as, like, you know, I smoke two cigarettes a day instead of mm. 20, right? I mean... <laughs> but you can make luckers very slow healthy. Release, slow, re- slow release carbs aren't particularly good for you. The mm. fact is that you shouldn't always think about health
1: when you're eating food, as long as you don't eat too much of anything. Yeah, mm. everything in moderation, as we say. E- everything yeah. in yeah. moderation, yeah. exactly. Right. More well, replying, there we are. Totally I, think, I think we'll have to. There we have to leave it. I'm feeling very hungry as a result of it. My thanks to our guests, the two Jeremys, journalist and author Jeremy Havadi, and the voice that is Jeremy Jacobs. Please do feel free to share your Jewish views with us, and you can email studio at jewishviews.co.uk, or you can contact us via social media. Find us on Facebook by going to facebook.com/jewishviews, or on Twitter we are at jewishviews. UK. Now, just before our rabbinic thought for the week, it's time to hear from Jewish domestic goddess Denise Phillips, who has a delicious recipe for Hanukkah.
13: And the recipe that I'm doing for Hanukkah is halloumi bites, ideal for the holiday season because they are fried in oil and a healthy oil it is. It's rapeseed oil. So, this recipe only takes about 10 minutes to make and only about five minutes to cook. And it makes about 16 pieces. So what you're going to do is take two tablespoons of plain flour, two eggs, 100 grams of sesame seeds, then 400 grams of halloumi cheese and cut that into cubes and then fry it in oil. So let me explain exactly what you're going to be doing. You're going to put the flour onto a plate and then beat the egg and then pour sesame seeds onto the second plate. So let's imagine what it is. So you're coating the... Cut up pieces of cheese, dipping it into flour and then egg and then sesame seeds. So flour, egg, sesame seeds to coat it. Pour it into the hot oil and rapeseed oils, as I suggested earlier on. And you're going to fry it for about two to three minutes so it's golden. And then lift it out and put it onto a rack. And this is important, a rack as opposed to a plate. And let any excess oil drip off. And then repeat. And then finish it off with Drizzle of honey. Delicious.
0: Thank you to Jewish domestic goddess Denise Phillips for that delicious sounding recipe. For that and some of Denise's other recipes, then you can always go to her website, which is jewishcookery.com. Well, now it is time for our thought for the week, and this time it comes from Rabbi Michal Evan Dovid from Edgware Mazorti Synagogue.
14: Last week, I was invited to speak with young adults that work for the Masorti Youth Movement, NOAM, about what is the meaning of Masorti Zionism. At the beginning, it was not an easy task, as honestly, I was not sure what to talk about. Should I speak about how the Masorti and conservative movement have supported the Zionist enterprise since the 19th century? Should I speak about the Masorti movement in Israel and its struggle for recognition? Should I speak about the traditional sources in Judaism that speak about the land of Israel, but from a Masorti point of view? At the end, I decided to tell my personal story as a Masorti Zionist that decided to make Aliyah alone in my twenties. I told him how I had a very strong Zionist education in my youth movement when I was growing up, developing love and pride for Israel, And at the same time, a strong Masorti upbringing that made me decide to become a rabbi later. Both ideologies were very influential in my life, and I believe they are complementary, even if different. I felt always very supported by my rabbi and community when I decided to fulfill my Zionist dream of moving to Israel to build a life there. After listening to my story, including my experience in the absorption center, on my service in the IDF, and after discussing some of the problems, contradictions, and challenges of Israeli society, one of the young participants said to me, okay, Rabbi Michael, we have to finish in five minutes. So what is Masorti Zionism? I smiled, and in that moment, in that second, I did understand what Zionism is for me today. I didn't see it before. I didn't prepare in advance. But then... I finally got it. Zionism today, Masorti or otherwise, should be about improving Israeli society, making it a place that we can all be proud and consider a light to the nations. This is not about politics, about left or right, or whether we should have two states, one state, or 22 states. Israel is physically built, no more swamps to dry, but we must continue building the soul of the Jewish country. There has to be a minimum standard of moral and ethics agreed upon all. The value of human life, all human life, is not debatable. The values of freedom and democracy are not up to discussion. As good Jews, we still have a lot to disagree about, but we must strive to be better than we are. We must strive to be a light and a model and that, for me, is Zionism today.
0: Thank you to Rabbi Michael evan David from Edgware Mazorsi Synagogue with our Thought for the Week. And that's all the Jewish views we have time for. Thanks to our guests, Michael Newman, Ella Rose and Ben Crown, Rabbi Danny Bergson. Thanks also to the Shmooze team, Jeremy Havadi and Jeremy Jacobs. And of course, to you at home for listening. And we mustn't forget to thank the team, including our producers, Adam Bradley and Sue Greenberg. Don't forget, for the next couple of weeks, we'll be looking back at our best bits for 2016. So I hope you'll join us then. But don't forget, you can always listen to the most recent editions of The Jewish Views by visiting the Jewish News website, jewishnews.co.uk. And you can listen to all previous editions by searching for us in iTunes. The Jewish Views is brought to you in association with The Jewish News and is part-recorded at the Studios of Jewish Care in London. I'm Phil Dave. Do make sure you join us next time here on The Jewish Views. Goodbye.